Hello, good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world. And uh, we are in a new, uh, uh, for a new episode of our Adastra, Adastra broadcast, uh, where we talk one-on-one -on -one with uh, uh, people that we think has something very important to say. We, we have done several programs before. You can go to the... Um, to the YouTube channel Ritorno a Itaca, and then uh, you can look for the playlist uh, uh, Ad Astra, where you will find the previous programs. Uh, some of them, most of them are in Italian, but uh, there are also uh, some in English, so you, you can check. Uh, today, I am very happy to be joined by Dr. Uh, or E. Michael Jones, uh, and with him uh, we will talk about the topic of uh, beauty. I say a few things uh, about uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones for people that may not know him very well. Uh, e. Michael Jones received his PhD in American literature from Temple University in, nine, in 1979. After getting fired from his job as assistant professor of American literature in St. Mary's College, Jones pre presently got out of Academ and founded Fidelity, now Culture Wars magazine, which is now celebrating its 40th anniversary. Dr. Jones is the author of over 20 books on topics ranging from metaphysics to horror films. His most recent book um, is Logos Rising, a history of ultimate reality that is being translated into Farsi. This past year, he completed his book on aesthetics, The Dangers of Beauty, the conflict between mimesis and concupiscence in the fine arts. The Dangers of Beauty begins with Giotto's liberation of Italian art from the tyranny of Greek models, moves on to discuss music in Germany, poetry in England, and decline of all forms of art under the modernist interregnum. So thank you very much, Dr. Jones, uh, to join me for this program. You're welcome. Good to be here. Um, so um, we mentioned about your book, The Dangers of Beauty. Uh, we already have you uh, as a guest in another program where we talk about uh, music and we talk about Wagner, Schoenberg, uh, and uh, things like this. But now you are um, writing about not only music, but also art in general. So I, I want to ask why you feel was important to publish such a book that uh, will be released uh, sometime around January. Uh, it, it flows from the book I did on... Uh, metaphysics, which you mentioned, Logos Rising, A History of Ultimate Reality. Um, th that's about being, uh, about the, uh, the development of man's understanding of being uh, and being uh, having uh, two parts. Eventually, they figured this out uh, by the middle of the uh, th 13th century in Italy. Uh, existence and essence. Uh this was an important uh, breakthrough, and the the main uh, the main manifestation of the relationship between existence and essence can be found in beauty. 
I, I say Maine because I think this is the way most people uh, find their way to the ultimate being, which is God. They find it through beauty, especially in places like Italy, where you have uh, a tradition of uh, the fine arts, of architecture, of, of cities that were built with human beings in mind rather than automobiles in mind. Uh, it, it, it flows logically from my examination of metaphysics as the mind's uh, ability to understand being. So you have w what we have here are three three transcendentals, which are all are the characteristics of being: the true, the good, and the beautiful. And as I said, the true uh, you understand through philosophy, uh, ultimate reality through metaphysics. The good is what you try to achieve by uh, having a moral life, behaving according to the moral law. But beauty is a perception of being uh, in a way that is accessible to virtually everyone. And that's why it's important. It's much more important uh, in terms of the reach of the access to the transcendental realm than either the good or the true because this is the way people are drawn in to the good uh, and the true. So uh, uh, there's an example I use in this uh, book is um, Jane Austen's novel, uh, Pride and Prejudice. A, 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 a famous novel, but a, a magnificent novel as well, because it brings together existence and essence in a, in a, in a, a way that uh, makes them uh, powerful as a, a, and perceived as beauty. So what I'm talking about here in the novel is there's this, there's this man, Mr. Darcy, and nobody likes him uh, because he's kind of aloof and standoffish. But then uh, the main character, the woman, all of the women are looking for husbands, and the, the main character in the novel suddenly goes to his estate and she is driving a carriage down and she sees this country house. It's called Pemberley. And she's struck by the beauty, the beauty of it. And then she goes into the house. This is Darcy's country estate. She goes into the house and everything is arranged perfectly. And the inside is even more beautiful than the outside. And she concludes basically, well, if, if this man can create something this beautiful, he's probably a good person. And maybe I misunderstood everything. In other words, it was beauty that is the turning point of that novel. And that's that's why part, part of what I tried to describe in the book, that's why I think it's important. Uh, thank you uh, on behalf of other Italians for your nice words about uh, our country, my country, that uh, I really, uh, of course, uh, agree with you. Um, but I, I want to, to ask you why uh, you um, decide to call the book uh, uh, not the, the, the importance of beauty or the, or, or the relevance of beauty, but the dangers of beauty. Why you want to emphasize this part about beauty? Uh, because that's, again, part of the Italian story. So to, to, for, first of all, what, what is the first part of, the, of the, the description, the subtitle? It's mimesis. Art is always mimesis. It will never be anything but mimesis. Aristotle said this, art is imitation of nature. That's what it's been. 
so uh, from the very beginning of mankind, that's what distinguished man from animals. I quote uh, Chesterton. He, he talks about uh, Ch Chesterton lived in the night, was writing in the 1920s. And it was around this time that they first discovered the cave paintings in Spain, uh, paintings of buffaloes on the ceiling. So it's, it's, it's mimesis. That's what they were doing because that's what the human mind can do. Along with language, mimesis is part of what it means to be a human being. So the reindeer man can create art and the reindeer can't. That's what Chesterton says. And what you have over this period of time is an increasing ability to imitate nature. And as, as we mentioned at the beginning, the, the crucial turning point came in Italy. And it came at the time of Giotto. Because up to that time, uh, I, art was imprisoned in Greek models. This is Vasari. Vasari wrote a history of art in Italy. This is Vasari's verdict. I think he's absolutely right. What do we mean by Greek models? We're talking specifically about Plato. And Plato believed that there were forms someplace and that the form was basically reality and that the real essence, so we'll call that essence, and existence was nothing but chaos and flux, and you couldn't say anything about it. So art, according to Plato, the best example you could give would be a temple. A temple. What's a temple? Well, you take, take a circle. You get the circle from the realm of platonic forms. You put them on top of each other, and you create a pillar. Okay, that's a pillar. That's just based on a circle. Then you have a rectangle, and that's that's the beam that you place on the pillar. So now you have a rectangle on top of a circle, and then you put the, the triangle on top of that, and you put a roof on that, and that's a temple. So it's basically you're taking the platonic form and imposing it on matter like the stone. Okay? That's platonic. And it had basically it, it dominated Western thought up until Giotto. The difference with Giotto is that he's Christian. He understands that the world was created by God. Plato did not know that. Aristotle did not have a, uh, an idea of a creator. And that means that the world is a work of art. Well, if the world is a work of art, you don't need to impose these platonic forms. The form is already in there. And this is precisely what Aquinas said. Aquinas, who was a contemporary of Giotto, who said existence brings essence into being. That is a complete reversal of what Plato said. And it's so profound, only an Italian figured it out. It was Umberto Eco. He's the only esthetician who figured it out. The man who did not figure it out was uh, Jacques Maritain and Etienne Gilson, two of the foremost Thomists of the 20th century, were, were Platonists. They weren't Thomists when it came to aesthetics. Umberto Eco was. He did a brilliant book in which he understood the implications of that statement by Aquinas. Now, did, did Giotto read Aquinas? Probably not. And they say he did a portrait of Aquinas. But the point is that why is Aquinas saying this? Because he's living in Italy, and Italy is an embodiment of that. And what you see here is you reach a point where the artist can do things that the philosopher cannot explain. That's exactly what happened with Giotto in Italy. So Giotto breaks with the Greek model, which is basically the icon, and you have the gold background. Well, he breaks with the gold background because nature is a work of art. 
We know that because we're Christians. It took about a thousand years to figure it out. But nature is a work of art because God's an artist. So we'll put that in the background. And suddenly you have a realism that has never existed before in mimesis, a huge step forward in mimesis. And now that's the beginning of this march forward with the Italians, uh, with one breakthrough after the greatest achievement in art in human history took place in Italy from the time of Giotto, uh, let's say up to uh, Michelangelo. No one has ever done uh, the equal to that in the, in the visual arts. Okay, we get to Titian. Titian understands how to organize pictures. He, he, the, he's a, a much more sophisticated artist than, than, uh, than uh, Giotto, and he's got a problem because he has to do what his patrons want. And some, uh, it, now he's got paintings that are so realistic that there's a demand now for pornography. Uh, Aretino was Titian's best friend. Aretino is a pornographer. There's no question about it. He, he brought out the first pornographic book because the Venetians had imported the printing press and it was called Emodi. Uh, the positions, basically sexual positions. And uh, this was precisely the danger, the problem that Titian was facing. And this is why I'm talking about the dangers of beauty, because mimesis can reach such a state of perfection that that woman, that naked woman that you're looking at looks absolutely real. And so the best example of this conflict is probably the probably the picture. The more, one of the most important pictures here is Venus and the musician. Now, I don't know whether you know this picture or better, better one, Venus and the organist. So there's a man, he's got, uh, playing the organ, he's got one hand on the organ, his left hand is on the organ, he's turning around and he's looking at Venus, and he's not looking at her face, he's looking at her crotch, okay? And But this is the position that Titian's in at this point, because mimesis has become so powerful at this point. So he's got one hand on the organ, that's celestial harmony, that's Pythagoras, that's the Logos, but he's focusing on... Uh, uh, the concupiscent, the, the desire, for, uh, fleshly desires. That was Titian's position because he was being asked to do this type of thing. He did an earlier painting, which I think is more instructive, more optimistic, and that is his painting, Noli Me Tangere. And that's Jesus Christ being greeted by Mary Magdalene. If you look at the painting, Mary Magdalene is reaching for Christ's genitals. But he's got his hand up. No, nope, don't touch me. And then her eyes are raised to his heart. So what you see here is a sublimation of sexual desire. You can sublimate sexual desire. This is an optimistic painting about the possibilities of what, what can happen. Okay. What, what the value you can go through human beauty, beauty to the transcendent. You can do this, but there's a danger there. And the danger, uh, would become more and more apparent uh, as time went on. So there's a crisis, okay? There's a crisis. The crisis is known as the Reformation. Okay, 1525, German mercenaries sack Rome, and they bring their horses into the Sistine Chapel. They have never seen anything like the Sistine Chapel. What are all these naked figures doing there? One of them carved uh, Martin Luther's name there. Uh, uh, the cardinals were upset with the Sistine Chapel. Okay, not only are there naked figures in a chapel, which are distracting, but there's Charon from taking 
the dead, the souls of the dead across the river Styx. What part of the gospel does that come from? That's not in the gospel. That's Greek mythology. And so the crisis here that got postponed in Italy, the crisis of pornography that Aretino created when he brought out a pornographic book, manifests itself in, in Germany as iconoclasm. The Protestants are going to destroy all art. The church has to intervene at this point, and with the Council of Trent, they resurrect. Uh, Federico Borromeo uh, becomes a patron of the arts. He writes, the Council of Trent issues a statement on sacred art, and they save art from both the pornographers on the one hand and the iconoclasts on the other, and the culmination of this would be somebody like Rubens uh, and the Counter-Reformation, and that's that end. That's why it's dangerous. Uh, is that clear? Uh, it's a long, long answer to your question. Yes, and and I want to uh, ask you uh, something more that uh, is uh, um, related to the uh, to the uh, to the main question of our own uh, program. And uh, the main question is uh, why is beauty truth? And uh, this question, the, this phrase also came from the title of one of your article. Uh, on the magazine you uh, you direct uh, uh, cultural words where you talk about the book of uh, uh, Roger Scruton uh, called On Beauty. Uh, now I, I want you to ask me uh, so why is the beauty truth if you can give a, a synthetic answer? If someone that have no philosophical background, nothing, ask you this question, why is beauty truth how you would answer? Yes, Keats said that in his poem, famous poem, Beauty is Truth and Truth is Beauty. First of all, the answer is because both beauty and truth are transcendentals. We've already said that. Yes. Secondly, okay, what is truth? I'm not Pontius Pilate here. Uh, Aquinas uh, dealt with this question too. Uh, uh, Aquinas said it's adequatio rei et intellectum. Okay, it is the correspondence between the thing and the mind. Okay, and so what well, beauty here is a similar type of correspondence and not so much a thing and the mind. If you're talking about the mind, categories of the mind, you're talking about essence. If you're talking about the thing, if you're talking about reality or nature, you're talking about categories of reality. Well, beauty is the same thing. You have the, co the coincidence of essence and existence. Now, the ultimate coalescence of essence and existence is God. God is subsistent essence and self-subsistent uh, existence at the same time. Okay, the beatific vision. If we die, if we go to heaven, we will see absolute essence and absolute existence coinciding in God, and that vision will be so beautiful that we'll be content to look at it for eternity. So this is this is where the correspondence comes in. So in art, uh, okay, we've had periods where uh, essence triumphs. The modern era is a good example because everything broke down in the modern era. So uh, I went uh, I went to um, the Rubens exhibit at the universe, at the uh, museum in Toledo, Ohio. When I got there, you had a five hour wait to get in and see because everyone wanted to see Rubens. And so I wandered around the museum. So there's the 50s room, the 1950s room. This is abstract expressionism. 
These are abstract patterns. There's no mimesis here. We've completely abandoned mimesis. The best example, it, you could have Jackson Pollock dripping things, or you could have Mondrian, and it's just design. It's, it's decoration. It's geometric forms. So, okay, so it's ordered, but it's not alive. And then you go to the 70s room, which is the reaction to the 50s room, and that's hyper-realism, and that's basically photography except that you paint in the photography. So this is like looking out the window. It's real, but it's not organized. What you have when you have beauty is you have absolute organization, not absolute, but uh, effective organization integrated with effective life. Organization and life are so close together that you can't separate them. And so finally I get to the Rubens exhibit and I walk in and there is the portrait of Princess Spinola Doria. A stunning painting. I wish we could put these paintings up when we're talking. But uh, basically, this, is per this person, you look at this and you say, this is a real person. I, if I saw her on the street, I could identify this lady. I, this is a real person. But then you look at the organization of the painting and there is a triangle. And that's her dress going up to the rough and that's a circle and then there's a circle of her head and you've got these geometrical figures so perfectly integrated into a, a real figure that you can't distinguish them and that's beauty and that's why beauty is truth so uh, um, uh i think uh, um uh, if i have uh, understood correctly uh, what you uh, were explaining that you uh, were uh, referring to this painting now let me show so that uh, you can also uh, confirm if is this the painting you were referring. Okay, is this one? That's it. That's it. Uh, that is uh, that's beauty. And when I when I saw that painting, I just stood there and didn't. You just stand there and you look at it and think, this is magnificent. This this is not. Uh, first of all, it's a magnificent painting all by itself for the reasons I described. But it's also uh, the resurrection of Catholic art after the threat of pornography and iconoclasm. This is the man who created the art forms of the Counter Reformation, the Baroque. This is the Baroque, the great triumph of ca Catholicism over uh, Protestant Europe. Yes, that's the picture. May, may I ask you? So why you? Uh... Uh, that we we make a, a sort of uh, live experiment. So why you find stunning this painting? Painting, of course, I also find it stunning. But I want to know your perspective because it's organized and it's real. It has unity in multiplicity, which is the definition of beauty. Mm. And uh, um, I, I want to ask you um, one thing about uh, um, aesthetics. Uh, so you know that, of course, uh, you know uh, better than me that aesthetics as, as a word and as a discipline was established in the 19th century. Thank you to Alexander Bongarten, and then also was taken by Kant. Okay. So what, what do you think about aesthetics as discipline? So what do you think about the 
reflection on 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 beauty do, do you do you think that uh, uh can be a danger because uh, uh, in the way you talk about beauty and many people talk about beauty beauty uh, sound like uh, really an experience of something that uh, we are doing so talking about this experience is of course the same for music huh? it sometimes can be very troublesome so what would you think about this Yes, it's an experience. You're obvious, you're right. And and Aquinas, who never really dealt with aesthetics all that seriously, did talk about beauty as in quod visum placet, that which pleases when seen. Okay, that's true. It has to be perceived. You have to perceive it. Otherwise, that's the whole point of beauty. It has to be perceived. But there is a danger there in saying, well, it's purely subjective, which is pretty much what Kant and Hume, Hume certainly said that. Uh, we have a phrase in English, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Beholder, yes. Well, is it? Uh, no, that's not, it's not quite that simple. Uh, people, uh, so this is why aesthetics, I think, is not taken seriously, because it immediately generate, degenerates into a kind of subjectivism. Uh, which is not really valid. So the question is, why is it pleasing? Why is it pleasing? I, 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 I was in uh, Montana, standing in a parking lot in Montana uh, at, in the middle of the night, and some woman walks up to me and she says to me, your hair is beautiful. Uh, so why did she say that? Well, first of all, she was drunk. Okay, that's one reason why she said it. But the second reason is, I guess my hair is beautiful because you can perceive the golden ratio in my hair. There is something intrinsically pleasing about the golden ratio. And if you want to look at one of the best examples of it, it's Della Francesco's Baptism of Christ. If you want to look at a painting where finally, The Italians finally brought together geometry and life in its first early stages. It's Della Francesco's uh, Baptism of Christ. Can you get that up? Yes, I, I, I am. I am looking. Uh, Piero della Francesca, no? Yep. Piero della Francesca, Battesimo. Yes. Now I, I'm. Uh, I am putting on screen just give me one second because i have to yes and now i put it on screen so um sorry yeah, because a few seconds are necessary to to make this uh, uh, uh let me see if it's okay there it is okay now if you look at the tree you see the tree yes The tree uh, divides that picture into the golden ratio. That's the golden ratio. The tree, uh, that division there that the tree makes is the same division that my part makes in my hair. There's something objective about that that pleases people, okay? But this, this is a much more sophisticated, it's organized much more sophisticatedly than, than simply that. So if you take this arch here, Okay, the arch goes around like this, and then you come around here and you complete the circle. It comes to Christ's navel, okay, which is the sign of his humanity. Okay, the circle is the symbol of God, of God the Father, I mean. That's unity. That's number one, of what Pythagoras would call number one. Uh, number two is diversity. That's uh, creation. 
And so here you have the union of creation and uh, God. Unity and diversity come together. If you add one plus two, you get three. And three is the number of the Trinity. And so what we also have here is a, a, a symbolic representation, representation of the Trinity. So if you take this as the base of a triangle, that triangle reaches its apex in the dove, which is the Holy Spirit. So you have an incredibly sophisticated theology, uh, sacred geometry, and the life of Christ all wrapped up in what is the beginning, uh, the, uh, the triumph of that bringing together of geometry and life, which made Italian painting the greatest achievement in painting in human history. Uh, thank you. I, I, I want to ask you uh, something before um, going to another uh, topic always connected with beauty. Uh, you, uh, when you uh, had the occasion to visit uh, uh, my country, uh, and I can see you, you really are fond of uh, my country's art. So I want to know what is the city that you prefer to visit? Well, I, I was, I was, I've been to Rome many times. Okay. And, uh, I've, I've, often, I've had great aesthetic experiences in my life. One of them was the Taj Mahal in India. Uh, but when you get into the Taj Mahal, it's, it's a tomb. It's an empty, it's an empty building. It's kind of like Islam. There's no real presence there. So you compare that to St. Peter's in Rome You have that, uh, that embrace of the colonnade there in Piazza San Pietro. And then you, the facade is, is not as stunning as the Taj Mahal. It's not. But when you get into the church, the interior is stunning. It's absolutely stunning in a way that only Christian art can be stunning. So you walk there and the entire, all of that, uh, the Baldacchino with those curling uh, pillars, It all focuses on that Bernini uh, window with the Holy Spirit. You focus, this is unity in multiplicity, multiplicity creating unity. Okay, I've been in mosques. I've been in a number of mosques uh, in Iran, in Isfahan. The Isfahan uh, has an absolutely beautiful ceiling of that kind of deep blue uh, tile that is characteristic of mosques. But the one thing I noticed about a mosque is there's no focal point. I, I gave, a, I gave a, a speech in a mosque uh, in Tehran, and it was just a little chair. It's just a little chair like what I'm sitting on right now, a folding chair with a microphone in front of me. There is no focus. That is one of the stupendous achievements of Italy is that you had, in the visual arts, you had these incredibly elaborate paintings that all focused, had this unity to them in a way that no one had ever done before. So, I mean, in terms, in terms of cities, uh, I was in Florence as well, uh, and uh, struck by, obviously, the statue of David, struck by the, the Duomo, struck by the great achievement, Bruno Lesci's great achievement with the, uh, with the, uh, the dome of the, dome. how he built that. But I was also struck by, by the city, Uh, this must have been a tough town to live in because everybody lived in a fortress in, in terms of walking around the city. Uh, I, I felt 
maybe it's because I'm, I felt in many ways more at home in the traditional American city before the automobile because it was kind of democratic openness. Uh, but but I, I mean, that's 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 beside the point. There are other there are other places in Italy. The landscape, the way it was co- sort of turned into a work of art, uh, the uh, all the po- the Po Valley uh, when the uh, the Lombards uh, it was all woods and they tamed it. It's it just it's just like what what you're seeing here is a millennium uh, of Christianity working its way into the actual fabric of the country in every every aspect. And Italy was the leader in every form, every art form. You get the sense when you listen when you read Shakespeare. Shakespeare was in total awe of Italy. Whether it was whether it was fashion, whether it was dress, whether it was music, whether it was art, Painting or whether it was architecture, Italy was the leader and England was just kind of this third world country off producing wool. That was the great achievement. And I I want to uh, ask you this, um, connecting with what you have mentioned now. So you talk about Florence and and we know that uh, the the, the greatest uh, patrons in Florence were the Medici family. And uh, uh, recently in the in the TV, there was a series about the Medici and there was a a scene where Lorenzo de' Medici was dying and Girolamo Savonarola was at his side and he said to him, do you repent about your sins, blah, 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 okay? And then he said, you repent that you invest so much and you did so, so much to, you know, to, 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 for beauty, I also see it as a profane beauty. I mean, to to painting statues and Lorenzo da Medici in the in the series, he said that he, he did not repent. And uh, um, you know, uh, today it seems that for someone there is a sort of guilt about beauty, also uh, guilt about the beauty of the of the human body, for example, beautiful women, beautiful men. And there there is a book I read by an American psychologist uh, that is called Beauty Sick. Uh, So it means that the the women or the men that are beautiful, uh, handsome, uh, they should be uh, ashamed because uh, they have an advantage uh, on other people. That uh, I personally find this uh, really sickening because uh, uh, beauty is a gift. Why, why one should be ashamed? But I want to know what do you think. Yes, there is. Uh, well, I said there's a danger to beauty, and and uh, Lorenzo uh, was. I mean, yeah, he was. He was invented the Renaissance, but he invented it. I, I not. The, he invented Carnival. He brought back Carnival. He did, in some sense, his father. No, his grandfather Cosimo invented the Renaissance when he got translated the hermetic text after the Council of Florence. And so this injected paganism back into the veins of uh, Christian, Christian Italy. And um, um, this, was, this was not good, okay? And Lorenzo uh, reached the point where the, the Medici got involved. They were cloth manufacturers, and then they became involved in usury, and they lent money to princes. And by the time uh, Lorenzo comes uh, to take charge of, of Florence, uh, he's bankrupt. And so what he has to do is d- 
divert the Italian, the, the Florentines from the fact that uh, he's looting the treasury because he's bankrupt. And so he creates Carnival and he hires Botticelli as his, as his uh, propagandist. And so the uh, Botticelli uh, is the man who described the Renaissance as the primavera. Uh, which is basically uh, uh, Florence. Florence is the city of flowers and it's paganism coming back to the city of flowers. That's the springtime that we're talking about. And there over at the uh, left-hand side is Lorenzo with the Caduceus, who's the rainmaker. Rainmaker in, in English means someone who could, can get money, who can generate money. And that's what he did. And uh, they, they had a chance, okay? The church had a chance with Savonarola. This was the last chance the church had. They should have simply, they did, okay? There, there was a huge uh, event of repentance in Florence because of Savonarola. And he created the Bonfire of the Vanities and apparently Botticelli threw some of his paintings on the Bonfire of the Vanities. We don't know what they were, but I suspect it was pornography because that was the type of stuff that Lorenzo was also uh, promoting. It was private. It, it wasn't held in public. You would watch that in private. You'd show it to your friends in private. Okay. He threw those paintings on and they had the chance to repent. And if Florence had repented and basically the church had reformed, we would not have had the Reformation. But sorry, um, I, I, I want to continue with this because the way you talk about the paganism and Christianity, I think deserves some more thoughts in the sense that uh, um, we, uh, we know that uh, Christianity was um, built on paganism in a certain sense and also because uh, uh, we also uh, we came after the pagan time and then we also inherit some of the the costume the the, the buildings or things like this so i remember a conference of cardinal uh, uh, alfredo taviani that was a, a great cardinal a prefect of the Holy Office called in the time Sant'Uffizio and then he say he was a canonist and he say oh uh, you know uh, uh, Christianity uh, built on paganism so it means uh, it make it better but uh, it's um, of course refuse what has to be refused but it's not refusing totally Uh, what uh, came before. So uh, I, I want to uh, ask you why you think that what was doing Savonarola was the right thing, because some people can find his reaction a little exaggerated. Right. To this day, he's not a saint. I think he should be a saint. The reason he's not a saint is because of the Jesuits. But that's, an that's another story. So the question is, what do you mean by paganism? What do you mean? By, I've written a book which basically says Christianity is based on Greek philosophy yeah. uh, and one word, logos. Obviously, that is not what I would call paganism. Okay, uh, uh, let's let's it's it came down to the conflict between Ephesus and Athens. When Paul is in Ephesus, that's paganism. That's worship of the Diana. The silversmiths ran the economy, and they made their living by making little statues of uh, of Diana. That's idol worship. That's wrong. 
Okay, but then he goes to uh, Athens and he meets with the Areopagus. Well, they're philosophers. Is that paganism? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. It becomes a semantic issue at a certain point. So what? What? Obviously, Cardinal Ottaviani is right. There is a, a, an inheritance that that uh, Christianity inherited. Okay, there is a whole uh, realm of art, and in a sense, one of the main things that got transposed directly was sculpture. So is let's let's cut to the chase here. Is Michelangelo's David is that Christian, or is it pagan? Is that what we're talking about? I, I I think that that's a perfect example of how Christianity perfects nature. Grace perfects nature. Grazie non tolat naturum sed perficit. That is one of the fundamental Catholic principles. It was articulated by Aquinas. And Italian art is the classic example of that, especially if we're talking about De, uh, uh, Michelangelo's sculpture. He was the greatest sculptor in the world ever. I remember as a 12-year-old, uh, I went to the World's Fair in New York City, and uh, we went into this room, and you're on this moving sidewalk, and there is Michelangelo's Pietà. I have never seen anything like it. I still remember it. I remember thinking, that's marble, but it looks there's a vein in Christ's arm. You can see that vein in Christ's arm. This is so real, and yet it's so it's made out of marble. How did he do that? One of the great achievements. So if 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 we take are, are we discussing Savonarola or are we discussing the Medici? We're talking about a moment when Savonarola should have been listened to because the problem in Florence at this time was sodomy and it was usury. Okay, they were the people that ran the operation. They were the people that killed Savonarola and they killed him with the collaboration of the Pope. And that was a catastrophe for Christendom because if they had the church had heeded his understanding, maybe he didn't have an understanding of art. Maybe, but maybe Botticelli threw some of his greatest paintings on that bonfire. I don't think so. I think it was pornography. But maybe that they could have worked that out if they had dealt, the church had dealt with the immediate problem of the corruption of the church in Italy at that time. And the fact that there were cardinals there who were lending money out at usurious rates. This was scandalous. And uh, because the Medici, and I'm talking about Pope Leo X now, the grandson, grandson of uh, Lorenzo. Oh, he said it's, it's the, a the son, the, the son. son, sorry, the son of uh, Lorenzo. I heard about something happening in Germany, heard about this guy, Martin Luther. It's a quarrel among monks. He dismissed it, and he decided he was going to have a good time and enjoy the papacy. That was a catastrophe for the church, and we've never uh, recovered. Uh, okay. Of course, we can talk about uh, uh, the, the action of Leo X, Giovanni de' Medici, on the on the um, on the Lutheran uh, revolt, uh, but I think uh, probably he did what he could when he was well informed about what was really happening. Because uh, yes, at the beginning he say, "Oh, this is just uh, uh, friars stuff, no, no, not very important." But then when he understood uh, that the 
the, the kind of problem and then he did the, the exurge domine where he condemned very strongly the kind of revolt but I think maybe this can be a topic for another a conversation between us but I want to return about beauty and I want to return to my question do you think that beauty also the, the uh, uh, beside art also the human beauty, because uh, you say, you know, uh, art is uh, uh, mimesis, or, or uh, we say mimesis, you say in English, um, uh, my mimesis, I think like this, yes. but I think yes. the people understand the same word. Uh, and uh, um, so imitate nature and uh, one of the main, uh, the main um, object uh, or subject is the human body, you know, the beauty of men and women. And I really remember, uh, because you mentioned about Florence, recently I was in Florence and I visited Palazzo Pitti and I look at the paintings uh, gallery, you know, that there are so so many beautiful paintings, including the, the, the portrait of Leo X uh, uh, by Raffaello. Uh, but I, I remember that I was really struck by some women paintings. Uh, the some portrait uh, really beautiful women that were you know that portrait in a way so i really think that uh, the, the beauty is uh, an important value and is a gift and is nothing to be ashamed and i think also even christianity never um despise beauty in people uh, we if we read the song of songs no there is a so vivid description of the beauties of the of the lover's right. body so what, what do you think well you're right but it's too beautiful <laughs> the female body uh, we're talking about men here the female body is simply too beautiful uh it's too powerful and and the, the if we go back to genesis uh the you could uh simply walk around naked in the garden of eden because you hadn't you didn't have that concupiscence. You didn't have that tendency to sensuality that we inherited from Adam. Once you once original sin is committed, you have to cover it up. Okay. And so Adam and Eve are portrayed usually wearing leaves around their genitals as a way of holding back fallen human nature because fallen human nature is a powerful force. And you're going to mixed in with that beauty is sexual desire. And how do you separate the two of them? How do you keep that uh, apprehension of beauty from degenerating into sexual desire? That's a really good question. And it's part of the history of art, I'm saying. So the good example, I think, is the Venus Torbino. Venus Torbino uh, of uh, Titian. And the, the important part here when you're dealing with Titian is the face. It's the face. Is it? What are you looking at? Are you looking at the eyes or are you looking at the genitals? And this is, uh, he, he also, as I said, Titian was a master psychologist. He was a, a genius when it came to human psychology. And what you see in this painting, uh, which was imitated by a lot of people, by Monet, for example, uh, centuries later. But what you see here is a woman looking into your eyes. She's looking straight into your eyes. Are you are you trying to get that picture up yeah, now? Yeah, yes, I, I am. I am trying to get one 
that is uh, um, because I find one, but uh, it was not good. Maybe I find one other that is better now uh, because I have uh, I I'm finding some of them, but the, the, there are uh, there are some uh, uh, text, uh, and I want to find one where okay. there is. So uh, Tishan dealt with this in another context, uh, and the, that context would be sacred and profane love. So you have beauty. Obviously, the, the, the female body is beautiful. The problem is it's too beautiful given your fallen nature. And because of that, you're led in an opposite direction. So the, the, what I'm saying here is that aesthetic appreciation and sexual desire are basically two completely different motions. When sex, when when you have a sexual desire, you want to possess the object of your desire. You want union with the desire. When you have this kind of aesthetic experience, you kind of step back and you don't move. There's no motion. There's the absence of motion. You have contemplation. Okay, there's you can get a 10% off. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I, I can only find with the... Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, ba but uh, I mean, this, the good part here is you do see her face. Okay. She, she's covering her genitals there. That's called the pudica gesture. Uh, but there's a look, she's looking at you and she's kind of, there's a kind of questioning in her face. And uh, she's saying, which is it going to be? Is it going to be love or is it going to be lust? Is it going to be a, a union, a kind of sacred union like matrimony, or is it going to be exploitation? And you, I, first, maybe you can, but I don't see, she's, she's got a question mark on her face. Her face is telling me, she's looking me right in the eye and she's being honest with me, and she's saying to me, what's it going to be? And I think that's precisely the, the, the psychological depth that uh, Titian conveys in this painting. Um, thank you. So uh, I, I want to um, uh, let me uh, remove this image. Uh, I want to... Um, I want to end our conversation uh, with uh, uh, I think very interesting conversation. Uh, we, we we may discuss for hours uh, on uh, this topic, but uh, uh, I, I want to ask you uh, one more thing. So you um, uh, for how long you work on this book on beauty? One year. One year. So, uh, but, but wait a minute. Wait a minute. I've been I've been studying beauty for my entire life. Uh, yeah, okay. of course. But, so, but, uh, but I have one year. I put it together in one year. In one year. Okay. And uh, and how many pages will be in the book? It will be 400 uh, pages uh, with illustrations. With illustrations. Big, big format, though. Bigger format than the other books. Okay. So uh, I want to ask you, when you, uh, in this year, were working on this book, uh, what uh, target audience you had in mind? So who you think should read your book? Everyone who went to college and didn't get an education. Because nobody teaches us. Even if you had gone back to Notre Dame when it was a Toma school, you would not have gotten this understanding of aesthetics because Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain were both Platonists. 
and they were also ethnocentric in a way that was not healthy. They were influenced by French Impressionism, and they were kind of chauvinistic when it came to that type of uh, retreat from Mimesis. I think it was a retreat from Mimesis. So the target audience is the people who went to college and didn't get educated. Hmm. So, so many people. I, I think well, that's a, yeah, it'll be a bestseller. I will sell, yeah. mil- I will sell millions of copies. New York Times bestseller, <laughs> I, 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 I would think. Yeah. So uh, and I want to thank uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, and uh, I want to tell our audience that uh, Dr. Jones will be our guest uh, uh, soon in the future. We will talk about uh, other topics with him, for example, Logos, that is uh, also one of his main right. areas. One, one of the things I would like to discuss with you is mimesis in music. Ah, okay. And that is 18th century, and it it focuses on the year 1770. 1770 is the year Beethoven was born in 1770, Hegel Hegel and Wordsworth. And all of those people figure in the the music part of of my... uh, I would really like to discuss that with you. Yeah, okay. I I will be very glad. And uh, sooner we will have... uh, um, Dr. E. Michael Johnson. So I, I want to tell you that if you want to be always updated about our program, uh, please go to Telegram. Uh, there is Aurelio Porfiri's channel in Telegram. You can uh, subscribe and it's free, completely free, and you will be updated about all my articles, videos, books. Uh, we are broadcasting these programs on YouTube Ritorno a Itaca, in uh, my Twitter account Aurelio Porfiri, in my Facebook fan page Aurelio Porfiri. So you can go there and follow our programs and I'm sure you will find them uh, very interesting. A, a lot of our programs are in Italian, but also now a good number are in English. And every week I have at least one program in English. So uh, you you can be uh, you can follow if you don't understand our beautiful Italian, as uh, Dr. Johnson was saying before, uh, talking about uh, uh, my country. Mm-hmm. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Johnson, and I look forward to see you soon in, in our uh, channel. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs>